All right, if you've listened this far, you know the deal. The book that came out of this podcast is called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone by me, available wherever fine books are sold. Also, the podcast I do these days is called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Search any podcast app for Ride Home, and you should find The Tech Meme Ride Home, which is all the day's tech news every weekday in just 15 minutes. If you like this show, you'll love that one. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Today we have another supplemental episode to Chapter 1. This time it's an interview with founding Mosaic and Netscape engineer John Middlehauser. John was responsible for the Windows version of both Mosaic and Navigator, and in fact rose to the position of product manager for Netscape Navigator itself. And if I could, a quick reminder that giving us a review on iTunes is the easiest way to support this podcast. So if you're enjoying these episodes, head over to iTunes, leave a short review of us, and thank you. And now without further ado, the interview with John Middlehauser. John Middlehauser, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. My pleasure. So I always start off really simple. Uh, where'd you grow up? Uh, I grew up in the Chicago area, a suburb uh, called Naperville, um, sort of a, a bit of the high-tech hub in the Chicago area. It's where AT&T, Bell Labs, and all of that started or is in. So that was an uh, easy hop, skip, and a jump to the University of Illinois then? Yeah, a bunch of my friends went there. So I, I was probably the local guy of, of the group, I guess. Um, but yes, <laughs> is the short answer. I had read that you were um, you were a self-taught programmer, computer nerd. Yeah, I was pretty much a geek from the start. You know, it, it my dad um, had started his own companies, has been sort of an entrepreneur his whole life, and I grew up with that. And he, you know, he brought home a computer very early uh, an Apple II, not a not a two plus or a two E, an Apple II, you know, all capital on the keyboard. Used a you know cassette tape drive to load load data, um, you know. So talk about you know half an hour to load the most basic program, um, and basically you know brought that home when I was you know eight nine something like that, and got me interested in computers really early on. So. Um, are you at the NCSA during graduate school or when you were an undergrad? Yeah, I was. I was a graduate student, so I, um, I guess I might have started there as an undergraduate programmer. But uh, when the you know relevant portion of this 
of, of the early web founding. Um, I was a I was a research assistant um, at NCSA. Do you my, remember getting my master's degree? Do you remember your uh, the first time you encountered the web? Uh, not specifically. Um, so you know, Eric Bina and and Mark Andreessen basically um, came across the work that Tim had done, um, and they were uh, they were Unix programmers at that point. So working um, on SGIs and Suns, Linux <laughs> Linux didn't exist yet, um, and you know, basically had come across and thought it was cool, um, and they basically had started to write and did the the uh, Unix version of Mosaic. Um, so, I mean, the first time I saw the web was actually, you know, Mark and Eric showing me what they had done. Um, I never saw Tim's work directly or any of that. I saw I saw Unix Mosaic, and, uh, you know, I said, that's cool, and decided, you know, uh, myself and Chris Wilson um, decided to write the uh, the Windows version of Mosaic, and then Alex Todich uh, wrote the Mac version. So it was, you know, a, a month or so after... Uh, Mark and Eric had come across it probably because and, you know they spent a couple you, of weeks. Do they approach you to to do a Windows port or is it just something that you're you're just interested in? So you you're like, hey, can I do a Windows port? Yeah, it was. I mean, we were all just kids, kind of hanging out in the basement of this, you know, what was called the software development group at NCSA, and you know, it was more like, hey, that's cool. I wanna I wanna do that. I you know, I didn't have a a, a Unix box at my desk, so I mean, to be honest, it's also just like I want to be able to do it for myself. So I mean, the the the, the project just started. The reason they did it was because they thought it was cool, and then um, you know, I Chris and I wrote the Windows version because we thought it would be cool. And by that point, you know, um, they were getting a lot of interest already in the Unix version. But obviously, the you know the 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 user base is you know, was minuscule compared to the Windows user base. So, um, you know, getting getting a version that would work at, on Windows was was pretty key. Um, I don't, you know, know how technical you want me to get at this point, but, you know, the, 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 the challenge at that point was that there wasn't a, a common networking library, what's called a sockets library on Windows. So, um, you know, it wasn't until much later that, that Microsoft came out with, with the WinSock library. So... At that point, you know, basically what you were writing was versions for particular network cards, which is sort of, you know, hard to imagine now, but it was like you you, you wrote a version that worked on a particular network card from, you know, a particular vendor um, and, and made it work. <laughs> and well, and but it is the Windows version that, in a way, that's what really uh, has Mosaic take off because mm-hmm. now, you know, the, the, the mainstream people can access the web for the first time, right? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you know, it's all exponential growth, obviously, from the start, but, you know, the Unix version had a very sort of academic um, usage pattern. You know, it was mostly um, people at, at schools and universities um, that that had access, obviously, to, to, to higher-end uh Machines, SGI, Suns, etc. Uh, the, the the Windows version coming out and, and the Mac to a lesser degree was was basically what led to the explosion of just sort of the the common person who wasn't really I mean got it outside of the domain of, of computer scientists basically right um, you know and and let you know just the average Joe start accessing the data 
uh, accessing the information that was available, and then obviously that that you know was necessary for the explosive growth. So it's just you and Chris Wilson working on on the Windows version, and are for each version, every, everyone's working independently. Like so, you know, if you do a feature for Windows, I, or is it true you're responsible for the hand icon things like that? Yeah. <laughs> so um, if, if you come up with a feature, does everyone else add it, or are you guys working together on, in terms of adding features and things like that? Uh, yes, to all of it. So um, it, when we did Mosaic, the three versions were completely separate code bases. So uh, the the Unix version that they uh, Mark and Eric had done, the Windows version, the Mac version were were didn't share a, a single line of code. Um, so you know, we would, you know, get together middle of the night and come up with some cool idea. Um, images was a, a, an example of that. And then we would go off and race and see who could do it first. Um, other times it was just, you know, one of the groups came up with some idea and did it. And, I mean, to answer your, do, did the other groups do it? I mean, the short answer is if they thought it was a good idea. So, um you know, it was really, really easy to change the icon on Windows. I mean, it was just a single call. And so I'm like, you know, oh, when it goes over a hyperlink, you know, it's sort of Windows standard. You change to, you know, the hand icon to indicate you can click on it. So, I mean, that was, you know, five minutes of work, right? Um, and then, of course, you know, that forced the other, you know, Unix and everybody else to go do it because it was a good idea and it was popular. Um, wasn't necessarily as easy on their platform. So, and there was often a, uh, you know, sort of the competitive aspect of trying to come up with the cool thing, get it done first, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I know, you know, the, the, the Wikipedia talks about the fact that I saw an image in a web page first, and that wasn't, you know, that, that was somewhat coincidence in just the fact that we came up, we said, hey, we should put embedded images. It was a highly requested thing. Um, and it was really easy, again, to do in Windows because Windows had this technology called object linking and embedding. So prior to, win to images being embedded, basically the way it worked was everything was text. You could put a link in there, you clicked on it, and it would bring up a separate program to view the image. Right. Well, in, in Windows, it was really easy to say, well, take that separate program and just put it embedded inside my program. Um, you know, we didn't actually write image viewing code at that point in Mosaic. We just embedded the, the built-in program to view it. So, um, you know, it was really quick and easy for me to do that first, which was was kind of cool. So so X, X Mosaic was not the first to, to support images. It was the, the Windows Mosaic. Uh, in terms of our internal, now I have no memory of which, you know, got released to an external use first. But, you know, it was, it was basically us deciding to, to build, this is my memory, and I, I, I gave you a caveat before we started recording that it's 20 years ago, it's hard to believe. Um, at, you know, I can't swear to it, but that my belief is yes, that, uh, that we had the, the, the windows internally first showed it. Um, the, the images was definitely an idea, was one of the ones that as a group we talked about and we came up with how to do, and then we went off and we raced to see who could do it first. Um, the, the, the Unix version tended to release updates publicly faster than the other version, so it may very well be that that version went public first, for okay. example. You know, uh, I, I'm sure you, I unfortunately didn't get a chance to listen to your interviews uh, with Alex and, and um, uh, Lou 
prior, but I'm, I'm guessing you got into some of the history of sort of the, the inherent conflict or, or attitudinal, attitudinal difference, shall we say, between sort of the Mosaic group and Lou and, and sort of the, the, the original guys like Tim Berners-Lee and the founders. Um, I mean, Images is, is kind of the classic example of caused a lot of sort of angst in the, the early web community because we just went and decided this was a cool thing and decided to put them in. Did, and it was did, con- did you attend that, um, that first web conference in Massachusetts? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I did. So and so and so they're they're kind of uh, they're a little aggravated at you guys for adding that at that point. Yes, is the short answer. You know, um, for for those that don't have the context, I mean, I would I would basically characterize it as, you know, Tim and and those guys had a very sort of European academic attitude. Um, really wanted uh, some philosophical things uh, to be inherent. Um, and we were more pragmatic and wanted to put in what people wanted. Um, so images was an example. So, you know, to be specific, one of the things Tim felt very strongly about, and I love as a theory, is that the data and the presentation were completely separate. And so basically the content of the web pages was completely separate from how it displayed. And then it could display on any device, it could display on anything. Um, so in that world, you don't worry about putting images in because images, you know, as soon as you put an image in, then the designer wants control over where to put it, right? I mean, that, now you look at web pages and obviously, um, you know, we had a very pragmatic view and, you know, I, I would say that time has shown it to be correct that for it to be successful, it, it, it needed to have this capability and, you know, it, it was one of those sort of things that, that caused explosion um, because everything up to that point was just sort of, you know, text on a page, right? And it's when you start adding in, you know, multimedia content, you know, videos and images, you didn't really have much in the way of videos at that point, um, you know, that, that it, it just, you know, we're humans. That is much more interesting things to look at than, than a page of text. Right. Can you... Describe a bit the the relationship with the NCSA because you know this project takes off. It wasn't necessarily an assigned project, even though it obviously fits their purview of what they're doing. But you guys kind of do this on your own, and then now it explodes. So what happens then when when the NCSA notices that this is you know taking off? Yeah, um, as you say, I mean it was it was a side project that we did, kind of you know separate from what we were, you know, our, our major assignments as students. Um, I mean, the, the short version is once it took off and started getting a bunch of public, uh, you know, notice, uh, first it became our official project, which was a good thing. Um, and then second, over time, and this is where it started to, to, and, and has been documented, cause conflict, it, you know, in kind of sort of classic bureaucracy, um, other people started getting assigned to it, and then other people started getting assigned to manage it and to, to run the project. Um, and you know, obviously, this was a this was a project that we felt passionately about. At this point, we had created and uh, you know believed that we knew what we wanted to do next, and we had our own goals and we had our own things that we we thought were important. Um, and those weren't necessarily aligned with you know what 
NCSA as an organization wanted or the people who were all of a sudden put in charge. So, you know, we found, you know, in effect, it was kind of take, you know, control was taken away. And um, this is, you know, over the course of a year and a half, two years, um, control was taken away and influence was taken away. So, you know, uh, that obviously is, is part of what led us off to go start up Netscape. Um, right. And yeah, people start to leave. Chris Wilson goes to Spry and uh, Mark goes out to to California to do whatever. And then, so how do you, uh, everyone said that you you sort of kept in touch with Mark, but how does he tell you he's coming back? Does he tell you he's coming back with Jim Clark? Does he tell you what the, the project's going to be? or? Um, he says, yeah, uh, so this was almost, we, we actually had kind of a mini reunion a couple of weeks ago when we were trying to figure out the exact date. It was some point in early April, so almost exactly 20 years ago. Um, Mark basically sends mail, says, hey, I met you know Jim Clark. He's a cool guy. He's looking to start up a company. And I'm talking with him about what we should do. Um, and then, you know, at that point, Jim was very interested in doing sort of interactive TV. So he was talking, he was trying to convince Mark to go do interactive TV. And the more they talked about it, uh, this is obviously how it's characterized to me, um, you know, the more Mark basically just said, you know, what we really should do is go do Mosaic right, do a Mosaic killer. Um, and you know, basically got Jim around to that point of view over, you know, the course of March. And then so, you know, at the beginning of April, Mark sends a mail saying, hey, Jim and I are flying out to meet with you guys. Um, and at this point, I'm in my second year of my master's thesis, or sorry, my master's degree, um, planning to take sort of, I'm finishing classes that, uh, that mid-May, um, and planning to take the summer off, kind of do my thesis and graduate at the end of the summer and then figure out what the heck I'm going to do with my life. Um, instead, they, they fly out mid, mid-April. Um, Jim meets with us all basically at a, at a hotel where he's staying, the, you know, the bar at the hotel, mm-hmm. uh, faxes himself uh, offer letters to us and, and offers us jobs to start up the company that became Netscape. Um, it was kind of a no-brainer to say yes. <laughs> I mean, uh, here you're going to, you know, I'm going to pay you to go work on the project that you want to go work on and give you guys control and the chance to redo it right. Because, um, you know, by that point, anybody who's done software projects knows that, you know, by the time you've worked on it for a year or two, you realize, oh, my God, if I had done, you know, all these things differently, it would be so much better. Uh, if you if you have the opportunity to start over from scratch and rewrite, it's 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 a way better product, and we we had that opportunity. It was great. Yeah, um, I I definitely see that. But I've I've said to everyone so far. I mean, it is still kind of a leap. You know, now now it's you know it's a cultural trope that you know uh, kids leave college and run out to California to make their fortune. But you know, you guys the, you you kind of started that template, so. It is kind of a leap to uh, all right. You 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 left the the master's program un, uncompleted, right? Well, the, no, actually. So that was you know around April fifteenth. I signed the offer letter and uh, wrote a thesis in two weeks <laughs> and uh, turned it in and flew out here on and we started up Netscape on May second and then about two weeks and I had basically completed my classwork, um, all the tests and stuff. So. As far as I know, and I did, you know, 
I did verify this at one point. I graduated, but I was I was out here working, you know, 120-hour weeks when my actual graduation ceremony should have happened. So no, I, I did complete the the thesis and and get it done. Um, in terms of it being a leap, you know, I think as I mentioned, my dad was entrepreneurial and had started companies. It had always been kind of my style. I, you know, it, it's the classic. I had <laughs> classic geek story, right? I mean, I had started companies when I was you know, 12 years old teaching people how to program, um, teaching adults how to program or how to use a computer. I had started a computer rental business. Um, so for me, uh, it had always been my goal to, you know, I, I think if you would pin me down at that point, I would have said, I'm going to go get a job for a while, get some experience and then go start a company. Uh, but it, it was definitely what I wanted to do. So I, you know, I, I, I think I was the easiest sell and, um, you know, was actually the first, it, it was somewhat random what order we went up, but part of it was, you know, I was the first of that group to go up and, and, and sign the offer letter. And, and that was just because I, I really had no doubt. It was, you know, here's a good salary. Um, none of us understood things about stock options or any of that. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing the other guy said this to you, but, you know, I have so much respect for Jim Clark at this point because, you know, he could have screwed all of us over and we would never have known. And he, he truly did well by us, um, you know, and, and, and treated us the way, you know, I hope other companies are treating their founding engineers at this point. And, uh, you know, really did make, you know, make us founders of that company as opposed to sort of, you know, slave labor he was taking advantage of. So right. that, that was a, you know, he, he was the experienced guy out here. We were a bunch of kids. We wouldn't have known any better, right? Mm -hmm. um, so whether it was slave labor or not, um, you, you are, you know, starting up, hitting the ground running, uh, working 120-hour weeks, sleeping under your desk and that sort of thing. Uh, Alex described it that, you know, you don't know anybody out in California. You're all young, single guys, so, you know, you don't have lives outside of work anyway. Why not? There was nothing else to do, right? Yeah, That's I mean, the only the only people we knew were the guys we were working with and having fun with. And yeah, I mean, I I literally had an apartment building or an apartment in the building that was kind of attached to our office. I lived the closest. You know, I didn't often bother putting shoes on to go uh, up to work. And uh, really dating myself here, but you know, 900 megahertz cordless phone from my house or my apartment reach the office space. So basically I could take my cordless phone, you know, which did not have much range at that point. This wasn't a half mile range phone um, up and there weren't really mobile phones that weren't the size of a, you know, <laughs> small, bigger than my iPad these days practically. Uh, you know, I could take that up to the office and, you know, like, like you said, there was nothing else to do. So uh, we didn't know other people, you know, I would, I would, work all day, go to dinner with those guys, go back. You know, we're software guys, right? We tend to work through the middle of the night. So, you know, go to bed at 3, wake up at 10. If I was lucky, go for a, a swim or try and do something for exercise and go back to work and re repeat seven days a week. It was fun. I couldn't do it now. Now I'm an old man. but Right. I, I, I was going to say, like, when you look back on that now, <laughs> do you feel like, wow, I can't believe we were even capable of that or – it's just youth, I guess. It's just youth, yeah. I mean, now I'm the gray beard who, you know, manages guys like that and gals like that. And it's, you know, they, it 
it's a lot of energy not always, you know, well applied. So there's, there's the balance of, you know, the energy and the wisdom. And, and hopefully as you lose some of the energy, you gain, gain some of the wisdom and, and learn how to work, you know, more effectively and, and, and get the right stuff done. Let me seg then into what is the marching orders are to, to do Mosaic but to do it right this time. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, do it right and do it um, with an eye of commercial usage, which is a different, uh, you know, a different lens to look at the project. Um, you know, basically, Mosaic was definitely definitely done just as kind of a hobby, fun little thing. Um, you know, it the three the three versions were all different code bases. They had different bugs. They had different. They had a lot of bugs. Um, you know, it didn't really matter. You were just throwing it out there, and if it worked, it worked. If it didn't work, you you fixed and you threw another one out. Um, but you know, when you start, we started up. Uh, it, it it was originally named Mosaic Communications, um, and then the name was later changed to Netscape. Um, you know, the first thing we did is basically sit down and say, well, if we're going to make a company out of this, a commercial product out of this, what what do we have to do differently? Um, and, and, you, and you can't use any of the old code. You've got to start from scratch in terms we of... We didn't... I mean, that was the funny thing is, yeah, there, there was the conflict you probably got into where, uh, you know, we were originally accused of taking the code and then we said, no, we haven't taken a line of code. Um, and we were audited and, of course, proven that we didn't. But, I mean, we didn't want to take any of the code. That's the thing is we wanted to start from scratch. We wanted to, to do it right. Um, there wasn't any code that we wanted to take, so um, that was the, the really easy answer of, no, we didn't. <laughs> Look at how it works much, much better. Obviously, it's not the same code base. Um, so we sat down and, you know, came up. Uh, Mark basically drove a lot of that discussion, um, and I'm trying to remember what the, all the items were, but the, one was obviously um, a shared code base between the three versions, which is pretty much unheard of at that point in time, that you'd have Mac, Windows, and, you know, Unix all sharing a code base. Um, uh, and then the biggest other thing was, was the invention of SSL, and that was basically, if this is going to be a commercial product, we have to do some level, um, we have to come up with how to make it secure such that uh, people can use it for things like putting a credit card in and shopping and business and, you know, all the stuff that, that people use it for today. Um, and, and those were, you know... Uh, oh, fast was the other. So um, we had realized as we worked on it that there were a, a lot of things that we had done wrong in terms of how we had written Mosaic um, and that we could get, you know, at least a 10x perceived speed, uh, you know, improvement um, in in redoing it. Um, and, and we did. Um, and that was... You know, as soon as we released sort of the first beta of Netscape, it pretty much just took off, um, and everybody switched over to it. And most of that was was the the perceived speed difference. Um, you know, you don't really learn the the stability until you know over time. And um, it was way better than Mosaic. It was it was still a uh, you know internet early product that that had issues. But are you is it fully cross platform when when you when when you finally launch? So um, it was cross-platform from the lowest layer up to a certain point, and then there was a platform-specific library for the three platforms, or 
technically it was even more than three platforms. So there was a uh, basically a front end layer uh, for 16-bit uh, Windows, 32-bit Windows, Macintosh, and then various. Um, I, I believe all the the Unix flavors were sort of one front end platform at that point. So all of sort of the the networking call libraries, all of you know the the the, the HTTP parsing, HTML layout engine, all of that was sort of shared code base. Um, when it came to actually displaying, you know, a window on the screen or displaying um, an image or you know a menu to do things, that was sort of by definition platform specific code. Um, so we we basically did an abstraction layer and 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 just you know created a you know call a you know throw up your menu and then the Windows did this certain way and Mac did a certain way and and Unix did a certain way below that. <clears throat> Well, and one of the other things that you guys get to innovate that I don't think people, you know, would think about now, but, you know, you're you're the first generation of people that can throw out betas and get feedback right away, and you know, you keep you keep churning out new versions because you don't have to, you know, ship it on a CD-ROM or something and wait six weeks for feedback, and you know, you guys can can iterate almost in real time, right? Yeah, I mean, that was huge, and we started that obviously with Mosaic. Um, where, you know, you'd have turns uh, with, you know, within a day of, you know, somebody finds an issue and you you immediately fix it. Um, <clears throat> you know, the, the the classic sort of software at that point was probably on, you know, a, a two-year release cycle um, where, you know, commercial software, new versions, I mean, it's sort of, you still see it with operating systems now, right, um, for the most part. And... You know that was the way software was done, and and you know as you say, the biggest problem with that is you you get very limited feedback. You're pretty much done with the product by the time you get feedback. Whereas, you know, kind of the the internet development style that obviously is prevalent now with a lot of things is is and there's all the buzzwords of agile and and various things. But you know what it really comes down to is is a quicker cycle with more feedback earlier on, so that you can adjust your path um, and and figure out you know. What's working? What the you know? At the end of the day, the whole point of software, obviously, is that that the end user is getting a benefit out of it. And if the end user is not touching it and telling you what they want and what's working and what's not, it, it's hard to measure that. You mentioned SSL, which you know I think you guys also deserve credit for not making that proprietary. Although I guess the argument would be, if you want it to be accepted widely, then you you have to throw it out there for everyone to use. But I mean, you guys also, you know, you, you adopted Java, you, you started to allow plugins early on and things like that. So you, you guys are developing the software, but you're also allowing, you know, the community to, to add on and, and, and any, any new innovation, if it's a good innovation, you guys incorporate it, right? Yeah, you know, I, now open source is kind of the, the label for all of that, but we were definitely philosophically sort of pioneers in that in the sense that, um, and we had to work hard to convince Jim Clark and some of the other guys from Silicon Valley of the value of this because, you know, there was obviously a question of you're doing all this, but you're publishing it all and anybody else can go do it as well. Um, and, you know, arguably that is what Microsoft did eventually. Um, mm -hmm. But it it's really what led to a lot of the explosive growth um, and, and a lot of the capabilities um, and it, it was something philosophically that we all felt fairly strongly about at that point. So, 
um, we didn't patent any of the original ideas. We didn't, um, you know, in hindsight, because patents are mostly used defensively, we probably should have, but we didn't know that at that point. Um, you know, it 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 was something that we felt strongly about and and believed that that this could explode and that there were a lot of ways that you could make you know a, a very successful business out of it. And obviously, um, that's been proven extremely true over time. I mean, I um, you know, search being the the biggest example or the most obvious example. Unfortunately, it wasn't one that that Netscape as a company tackled, um, but you know. Google or started with Yahoo and then Google and 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 sort of that second generation of of web plays um, clearly have have shown how you could make a very 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 successful business out of out of the the technologies. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Yeah, that's, I mean, this is sort of an aside, but it does occur to me that, you know, you guys, you, you described you had to talk Jim Clark into, into leaving the stuff open and, and some of the Silicon Valley people... It occurs to me that that was so much of the ethos of the early internet is, you know, that collaborative open, you know, the the whole Tim Berners-Lee uh, design, design the web to be collaborative and open and not be, you know, closed standards based and stuff like that. And that's, you know, that, that, that sort of at the beginning is responsible for the exponential success, but I, I kind of feel like that's been lost in the last decades or so. Um, I don't think it has. Um, I think it, it has shifted somewhat. Um, what, where you see it now is, you know, <laughs> how much sort of foundational technology there is to build a business, build a product. So, you know, back when we were doing this, um, you know, there, there was nothing. You, you know, if you were starting a software project, you started with a blank screen. Um, you know, now, um, and well, you started by going to Fry's and buying a server, um, mm. and, you know, trying to get an OS installed on it and then a compiler and then a blank screen, and then you start writing code. Um, you know, there is just now, if you want to write a, a, a mobile app or, if, uh, you know, you, you can have something up and running in, you know, less than an hour. I mean, you spin up instances on AWS and use this library and that foundational, a piece and this foundational piece and and all of those sort of uh, building blocks didn't exist back then and I really think that's the new form of sort of the openness is is you know 
uh, jQuery and, and all of these things that, you know, um, all kinds of products are built on top of that are that are open source foundational pieces that that didn't exist. Uh, you know, one of the interesting things about when Netscape founded was uh, you know Silicon Valley to some degree was stagnating. I mean, there was there were big companies out here, uh, the HPs and the um, SGIs and the Suns um, and the Oracles and and those, um, but there wasn't that much interesting innovation. There weren't a ton of little startups. I mean, as you say, writing software was hard. Um, so most of Silicon Valley tended to be hardware, and hardware is a long development cycle. Um, it worked great for Netscape because what it meant was that, and I didn't recognize this until, you know, it's easy in hindsight to see 20 years later, um, but I had no frame of reference. We attracted the most amazing talent because we were something interesting and hot. So, you know, the best of the best of Silicon Valley that was kind of sitting around going, what the heck should I work on? All kind of magnetically were drawn to Netscape because it was this buzz, interesting new world opening up. Um, I, I joke about sort of relative versus absolute scales. And, you know, this is my first job. I'm 24 out of college and and you work with folks and you come up with sort of this scale right oh that's an A player and that's a B player and that's a C player and it's just natural you know it's it's natural uh, way you think of things and you know after I left Netscape and and I went to another company another company and I started to realize that you know my scale at, at, at Netscape was was sort of a relative scale and on an absolute scale you know those C players at Netscape were easily A players, you know, in the in the world as a whole, or or the valley as a whole. I mean, there were people who, I was like, God, I could never work with this guy. And you know, two or three companies later, I'm like, you know, I'd kill to have that guy as my CEO <laughs> over the you know over the one I have, right? You know, mm -hmm. um, and it, it was that sort of draw of, you know, uh, all of the top talent, all the interesting people ended up there. So if you I mean if you look at sort of the tree of Netscape. Um, in terms of all the companies that have come since, either directly or indirectly, and obviously things like you know Andreessen Andrews and Andreessen Horowitz and all those, it's it's easy to trace that tree. But you know, Ram Sharam wrote one of the first checks for Google, um, and you know he was he was a guy on the sales side I used to fly around with all the time, um, being sort of the, the the geek in the room. And there's just you know there's a hundred of those stories of you know v people who have become VCs and people who have become started this company or done that and it's it, it it's really I think I think a lot of the legacy is is that as much as anything of of the the, the tree of companies and technologies that have, have spun out afterwards and some of the feedback I've gotten from people that you know had never even heard of mosaic and, and maybe had heard of Netscape and stuff like that did you become basically the the product project manager of navigator as it went forward yeah, so I started um, for 1.0, uh, I ran the Windows team and was basically the Windows engineer, uh, myself and, and, a, and a guy, Chris Houck, um, who came from NCSA, although he hadn't worked on Mosaic with us. Um, and then basically the short version is I got talked into being the first product manager uh, for 2.0 as well. I, I joked... Uh, that you know, I made the mistake of letting them know I could talk about the product as well as as write it. And what we had run into was, you know, nobody knew what this was. You know, we were spending all of our time explaining, you know, what is the internet and you know where's the server, you know, the server, right, for for the web. Um, and you know, so I 
you know, obviously fundamentally understood what was going on and was able to communicate. So um, moved over and was product manager for sort of the 2.0 effort. And you mentioned plugins in Java and JavaScript, and that was really um, that was the time frame we added it. So as as the as the product manager, I kind of led what I think of as to use the current buzzword is the 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 platformization of the web. So I was that was exactly what I wanted you to talk about. For for people that maybe never use Navigator, can you talk some about you know Navigator adds news groups, adds an email client. You know, can you talk about that turning Navigator into a software platform of its own? Yeah, I mean, I I think the the, the best examples of that are JavaScript and, and to a lesser degree Java because it took Java a fair amount of time to get traction. But um, JavaScript was an extremely conscious effort um, on our part to add in you know a client side language that let people to do things that we had never thought of before in the browser. So the the, the earliest example of this was was Forms and and. Um, I'm, I guess you talked with Lou about this because Lou was, you know, one of the sort of creators of forms. And for people who don't know what I mean by forms, forms are basically, um, you know, the the widgets you interact with to fill out information. So, you know, when you're filling out your your address and your credit card, and there's a text entry field. That's in HTML parlance, or at least HTML 1.0 parlance. Those were those were forms before forms. The web was a was a one-way street. I mean, it was a it was an information viewer, but there was no way basically to send information back to the server. Um, so we added forms and saw this explosion of people doing things that, you know, oh, if I can put a text field in and ask for something, then I can kind of dynamically change what I return to them. Um, and there was this absolute explosion of of creation of things that you know. We had never imagined people doing, and and saw the value of that, and so decided, you know, we need to we need to do the next generation of that, and that was sort of where the 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 origins of the idea um, department of redundancy department there, but the origins of JavaScript, um, you know, was let's put a language in that lets people interactively change the page uh, based on what you know on logic on programming um, and Java. And then uh, plugins was the other was you know we were getting all kinds of people saying oh can you add the capability for this type of image or this viewer and Adobe obviously was like well can you change to PDF from HTML and and our solution for this was rather than doing a bunch of custom programming we're going to do an interface and let anybody put stuff in um, and and I think again that was one of those key decisions that kind of led to the next level of exponential growth. Um, <clears throat> And there's, you know, you can point to sort of those milestones all through the project. Each one caused caused this sort of uh, explosion of, of, and and it's it's content driven. It's it's what the guy at the other end could say. Oh wow, with this capability, I can make this you know server that does this amazing thing. Um, and then somebody else sees that and you know takes it to their domain. So, um, you know, it. it it's it's enabling again that that user and in that case the user is the is the content creator it's the it's the guy who's wants to put up you know information he's you know a fan of some TV show and he wants to make a web page that all about that TV show that all of a sudden has all this content and it was just that um, you know I think the other thing folks today don't necessarily appreciate and this was one of the things that was really nice about HTML was anybody could write HTML, 
there weren't, you know, editing programs at that point. You opened up VI or a notepad and you, you wrote HTML and it was the simplicity of it kind of opened it up for everybody. I'm bouncing all over the place. But. No, no, that's that's perfect. Um, do you do you have any memories of the of specifically the IPO or that that the time around the IPO? I have a couple memories of the day. Um, you know, we didn't. Again, you know, we're young. We're not all that business savvy. Um, there was, you know, I. I at that point was on the product side, so I was doing sort of interviews going in and had a better feel for how how much buzz there was. Um, but you know, I it it just was kind of this ton of you know energy that day, and and obviously we were supposed to for the we were supposed to open at a certain price in the morning and then the price doubled and then it just nothing happened and we we're all like what is going on and then it finally opened um you know way way higher than originally and it was it was exciting and we you know yelled and screamed and all that stuff and then an hour later we were back to work cuz you know none of us really understood what was going on and it was all of us had something we were in the middle of doing so um you know i I think you still see it in Silicon Valley that the successful companies, the successful products are the ones that the people doing them have the passion for the product and they're doing it, you know, as I said, now I'm kind of the gray beard executive management type guy and, you know, it, the companies that I see succeed are the ones that are doing it because they strongly believe and they enjoy what they're doing and and that's that's kind of what everybody was, you know, who who was working on at that point was feeling. So uh, after the IPO, you, you know, you already were the the hot thing in in Silicon Valley, and you know now now all the attention's on you, and right away, uh, Microsoft's attentions are on you. When I when I spoke to Chris Wilson, he talked about the IE team having a sense of competitiveness with you guys in terms of coming out with new features and. Uh, you know, the, our version is faster than your previous version, and that sort of thing. Did you guys feel a sense of competition? Do Do you feel? When do you feel Microsoft turning their attentions towards you? Is my real question. Um, certainly, when they started coming out with IE, um, there was, you know, there was direct competition. Yeah, I mean, there was competition of features and speed and and. Uh, you know, uh, user base, you know, what percent of people are using what. Um, but, you know, the, the the funny thing about us and Microsoft was from day one, people would ask who our competition was, and, you know, our answer pretty much was Microsoft at that point. And people would look at us like, we're crazy. I mean, first off, you're 20 guys, and, you know, they don't have any clue what the web was. But, you know, we, we sort of fundamentally understood that if we succeeded that you know we were going to be in their crosshairs and then you know the the fact is and they were the 800 pound gorilla and anybody who succeeded was in their crosshairs i mean it, it there wasn't a product category in software that existed that you know if you succeeded microsoft was your competition i mean if if you were doing a spreadsheet or a, a, a word processor or you name it i mean then they had pretty much uh you know Innovated, conquered, etc. Every every space there was by that point. So 
it, it was easy to see that if we succeeded, Microsoft was was going to be our competition. And it really wasn't until that second and third generations of companies, especially Google's come along, that that's not necessarily the case anymore. Um, and, you know, I Netscape wasn't the company that kind of broke that monopoly, but at least we, we laid the groundwork, so. Right. Do you, I mean, I you know, you weren't in upper management or anything like that, but do you, looking back on it, do you feel like Netscape could have done anything differently, um, especially oh, in the in the in the browser wars or anything like that? You know, hindsight's twenty twenty. You can come up with little things that I w- would certainly have done differently. Um, fundamentally, I don't know that any of it would have mattered. I mean, so there was always this perception that we gave away the product for free, and it just isn't true. Um, Netscape was free for non-commercial use. Um, that was the license agreement. We had, you know, teams of people sitting around uh, looking. The nice thing about Netscape, uh, it was a really easy sales for these guys. Uh, they were, we called them the net sales team. And basically, you know, Netscape, when you started it up, went to our homepage. And so we could look at our server logs and we could tell who was coming in and, and using the browser. And these guys, literally, guys and gals, literally would look through those logs and go, oh, Oracle has, you know, 20,000 people using it. would call up the IT guy at Oracle and say, you got 20,000 unlicensed copies. You owe us, you know, X dollars. And we were making millions of dollars off of browser. Um, And, you know, you run into a company that has billions of dollars of cash. uh, Your millions of dollars doesn't do you much good when they say, okay, we're just going to give away this product for free. So, you know, in terms of the browser itself, um, you know, if, if you have a competitor who can outspend you and give it away for free, you're kind of doomed. Um, you know, fundamentally, Netscape as a company, could they have, could they have succeeded? Of course. Um, I mentioned search earlier. You know, we, we tackled a lot of areas trying to find where the business was. We tackled, you know, a lot of server technologies that, that still exist and, and, and made good money off of them. Um, we tried to tackle sort of content, but our view of content was more, you know, the, 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 the homepage content newspaper, we're going to, we're going to be the point where all the information comes and we're going to make ad revenue. Had Netscape, you know, the, the Yahoo guys were in a cube, a couple of, you know, cubes away from me, basically incubated in our office. And, you know, we easily could have bought them and integrated them. Frankly, I'm not sure given sort of the cultural, you know, way Netscape thought about things that would have worked and be good for them. I th- I'm sure they're very happy we didn't. I think um, that I think that an, <laughs> an offer might have been made at some point. I've read yeah, there's suggestions yeah. that that was made. It, it was made, but it was it was a a small enough offer that they easily were able to pass on it. Um, I mean, we could have made them an offer they couldn't have passed on, right? Mm-hmm. If, if if so, in hindsight, could you have come up with ways that the company could have succeeded? Of course. Um, you know, you could have become Amazon, you could have become whatever, right? Um, but the browser itself, which is where, you know, obviously my end of the world, I, I don't know how you could have ever competed with somebody who could outspend you, double, you know, put twice as many people on it and give it away for free. You just can't build a business out of that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when did you end up leaving Netscape? Was it before uh, the AOL purchase? Yeah, I left... Uh, in 98, sort of mid to late 98. So um, 
Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it was pre-AOL acquisition. To be honest, by the time I left, um, I just thought the writing was on the wall. I mean, Microsoft had kind of it had won the war. Um, and, you know, I, I in hindsight, I'm very impressed uh, with Barksdale pulling sort of the rabbit out of the hat and managing to, to sell, sell the company off to AOL um, at that point. Um, well, I... I'd like to wrap up a little bit with um, with what I like to think of as my Barbara Walters question, which is, <laughs> A, you know, it's 20 years on. Can you believe it's 20 years? And B, when you look at what the web and the Internet has become, is it what you imagined 20 years ago? Is it Has it not lived up to what you imagined? Has it gone beyond what you imagined? Uh, a, no, I can't even begin to think it's 20 years. Um, it's it's mind blowing. I mean, it, obviously we're doing these interviews and we have a reunion planned in May, and so I, I keep getting sort of slapped in the face with the fact that it's 20 years. Um, My apologies. Yeah, no, that's that's fine. Um, it, it it doesn't feel like that. I mean, I it it there's there's so much innovation, so many interesting things. It still feels like we're sort of on the upslope of of that technology uh, growth. Um, but then I look back and I realize, you know, I'm significantly older than kind of the guys I thought were the old guys who were managing us, uh, the guys who had come out of SGI. And, you know, now I'm in the role or, or senior to the role that they were in at that point. And I've got kids and I, you know, uh, I've got almost a teenager at this point. So it, it, it's hard to escape the fact that it's 20 years. In terms of did it become what I thought, uh, you know, none of us could have imagined the complete... Uh, you know, how much it's permeated everyday life. Um, we definitely talked about, uh, you know, shopping and travel and all, all these use cases. And, and I think we actually thought much bigger than uh, anybody would believe, you know. And, I, and so the fact that I can buy almost anything online and the fact that I can get almost any piece of information online, that was all stuff I did imagine um, as we went through it. Um, I, I would say, and since you characterize this as sort of a Barbara Walters question, this is appropriate. Um, the thing I didn't take into account that the web, and, and to me is sort of fundamentally something I'm really, I guess, proud of, um, was how it would influence the world and, and, and specifically sort of politics and people. And I'm, I'm thinking of kind of the Arab Spring and, and as a particular example of, of the web becoming sort of per, you know, pervasive everywhere has led to sort of information being free and I think has led to and is leading to sort of social changes faster than uh, I could have ever imagined and you know pick a pick a subject um, whether it's it's something as fundamental as the Arab Spring or, or particular sort of you know policy things in this country like um, gay marriage or marijuana legalization I mean I think sort of exposure to information, exposure to ideas, and, and you know, the, the generations growing up now, they're not limited whether, you know, they're growing up in the deep south or they're growing up in, you know, Pakistan. They're not limited to the information that's being presented to them from 10 miles away, you know, or, or the circle of 10 miles. And and I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. That, that you know, that changing the world aspect 
never occurred to me and is, is, is sort of the fundamental thing that I'm sort of most proud of of, of, of that's come out of, of the stuff we did. Well, John Middlehauser, congratulations on 20 years and uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. 